Amen. Enjoy that. Thank you. And uh, thank you for those of you that are here this morning. We've got a few folks out and away from us. I saw Janet finally walked in. She was hurting this morning and had to take a muscle relaxer. And uh, hopefully she's feeling better by now. It takes a little while to kick in, but uh, I think she'll be doing a little better. She's got those two grandkids back there with her. So anyhow, she wouldn't give up for anything on that. We're glad you're here. Thank, glad for our visitors here with us. We have Avanel's son here and um, Mr. Carr, got that right, and Mrs. Stefania. I did it. All right. Two, three thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> that was good. Okay. Well, we're glad you're here to worship with us and, and actually to start the new year off on a, on a good footing. And that's a great thing. Um, and we did have a great time last night. I really enjoyed myself. I had a call from Gary Cooper this morning, and Gary said, I pr I'm in bad shape. I promised Dolores that I would sing a special for her this morning, and he said, I forgot. I've got a commitment somewhere else. He said, you can rebuke me from the pulpit if you want to. I said, no, that's all right. She'll understand. He said, but I'll come back and fulfill that promise another time. So he had to... I don't know what he was doing, you know, this morning. Then the uh, Indian couple that visited with us last night, the little girl, you know, she, has, was, she was really, really extra tiny when she was born, and she didn't talk. You probably noticed that. She'll say a word every now and then, but basically she couldn't talk. Cutest little thing you ever saw running around here. And uh, they went back home last night. Gary lives in a little apartment, and they are in the apartment right next to him. That's how he got to know them. And he's in school in seminary at Tennessee Temple, and that's where his father graduated from back in the 70s. And so because of that, that's what influenced him to come here. They went home, and uh, he said, boy, they're a, a really a spiritual couple. He said they went, decided they wanted to have a word of prayer before they all departed his wife prayed for about 20 minutes, he said, and then he prayed. <laughs> and he said it, it, he about brought the house down. He, Gary was really impressed with them. And the other thing he said was, um, Gary, where did you ever meet so many nice white people all in one place? He said, and now he's, you know, he's in his second year of school, so he's no stranger to Chattanooga. He's been around here. He says, I haven't found this in Chattanooga anywhere else. So he was thoroughly, thoroughly impressed and enjoyed his visit with us this morning and, or last night. And uh, that was what he shared with Gary. So he, Gary wanted me to pass that along to you and that uh, they really enjoyed themselves and uh, will undoubtedly be coming back to visit again. You finally met Abraham, yeah. His name was Abraham Simon. Her name was Daisy, and the little girl's name was Hannah. And they were quite the couple. And I uh, look forward to hopefully having them back sometime. That was that was a very good visit. Okay. First John. We sang a few songs last night. One of them was the song we sang this morning, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And that comes right out of the scriptures, uh, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. And so we want to 
and that was, interestingly enough, I told Mary and Bob that that was a passage I'd been planning on speaking from. I've spoken from this passage in the past. Uh, I'm speaking from it again, maybe from a little different angle than I did before. Not so much because you need it. I felt like I wanted to preach from there because I needed it. And it's good for me. And uh, so we're going to deal with this passage in a little bit this morning. I trust it will be something that will encourage your hearts as we set our hearts and minds on how we're going to live our lives in the coming year. Of course, we set our hearts on how we're going to live each day, and that's of utmost priority, day by day. But it does us good to look forward and look far beyond and look outward to the long term, and especially as we look to the Scriptures to see what God has said out there in the future, long term, you know, what are we aiming for? What are we headed towards? And so I want to talk about that just a little bit this morning. Okay, so 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. We'll read a couple of verses here. It says, And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, uh, shall be But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Now, those are words that look to the future and give a direction and purpose to a Christian's life. Now, of course, John, writing to his disciples appeals to them in a very tender way. He calls them little children. Or some actually translate this as little sons. It's just a tender way of a teacher addressing his disciples, those who were following his teaching. And, of course, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, the apostle John taught with authority. He was one who had spent time with the Lord, and he knew the truth. And he he spends considerable time in this book addressing the truth. As a matter of fact, if you turn back to chapter 1, you'll see that several times in this epistle, this little letter that he wrote, he addresses the idea of truth. In verse 6, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And one of the things I would like for us to see there and focus on is knowing the truth is connected with doing, obedience. And then look at verse 8. He says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so truth is something that we can possess. But if we sin, if we walk in sin, if it's something that's habitual 
and characterizes our life the way we are, then he says the truth cannot be in you. And so what we see immediately here then, it is one thing to possess a knowledge of the truth. It's one thing to say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. I believe he is the Son of God. Yes, I even believe that he died on a cross. And I believe that he was buried. And oh boy, yeah, I even believe in the resurrection. That he came back from, from the dead. See, it's one thing to acknowledge the truth of those uh, propositions that the scriptures give us. But it's another thing altogether to be practicing the truth. And he says, if you are not practicing the truth, walking in obedience, then the truth is not in you. So you may know it, but it's not in you. Now, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 4, he says there, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, that's just another way of restating what we've already said. To say that you know God. Oh yeah, I know him. And yet not practice the truth. He says you're a liar. The truth is not in you. And then if you look at verse 21 of chapter 2. He says there, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth. But because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. So he's writing to his disciples, claiming here, he says, they, you know the truth. He had taught them plainly. They understood what the Bible taught regarding God and his son, Jesus Christ. They had a knowledge of the truth. Then in chapter 3, um, well, actually, let's look down at verse 27 of chapter 2. He says, But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And so again, you see the connection there, that for a person to claim that they know the truth of the Scriptures... The admonishment is then, you abide in Christ. You remain in him. And that little word in is back to the familiar word we've talked about on several occasions. In Greek, it's spelled E-N. And it has to do with participation in a sphere of activity. And so when he says abide in Christ, he's... or Another way you could translate that word is remain in Christ. And what he's speaking of here then is that the one who is a disciple who claims to know Christ and to know God is to abide or remain in him. And of course, the the clear implication that John presents to us then is that we, though we know the truth, we can walk outside of him outside the truth, and not abide in him. And he told us back in chapter 1, if we do that, he says, we lie, and we do not the truth. And if we do that, he says, you're not walking in the light. You're walking in darkness. And so a Christian then, who 
John is admonishing here to abide in Christ and to remain in Him is walking in the light when he does that. But if he gets away from the Lord and doesn't remain faithful, then he can still know Christ, know the knowledge of the truth, but yet really not know him. He's walking in darkness. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Because ultimately what John is pointing to then is that when he shall appear, we don't want to be found walking in darkness. As a matter of fact, he tells us there in verse in 228, the next verse, he says that we would be ashamed before him at his coming. We're going to dwell on that in just a moment. In chapter 3, verse 18, he mentions the truth again. He says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so now we're back to that same principle. Those who have a knowledge of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, and all that God has revealed in Christ concerning the future, His coming rule and reign over the earth when He comes back, and all the events associated with that, we can be filled with the knowledge of these things and yet not walk in truth. He says you, you, you can love in word, you can love with your tongue, but he says the primary thing is to love in deed and in truth. It's when we're the going about the doing of the truth that Christ's righteousness is manifested in us. And we're going to look at that in just a moment, too, over here in the passage we read initially. Verse 19 says, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Boy, you want assurance? You want your heart to be assured that you know God? That you are one with him? Is to do the truth. That's where righteousness is then is ultimately and actually manifested. And it's not for our own assurance, as we're going to look at also in a few minutes. Chapter 4, verse 6, he says, We are of God. That is, in this context here, it's we apostles are of God. He, that is the individual disciple, we're looking at chapter 4, verse 6 of 1 John, we, the apostles, are of God. He, the Christian, that knows God, hears us, heareth us. He listens to what we have to say because we speak with apostolic authority. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so there is this pervasiveness of a spirit that encompasses a person who is a Christian who is walking with God and in vital, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a difference there. And that's really the distinction that the Apostle John is trying to bring out here. That it's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing altogether to do the truth. And then over in chapter 5 and verse 6, 
<coughs> he mentions truth here for the last time in this letter. He says, <coughs> concerning Jesus, the Son of God, he says, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now, in all of this, you know, as we've said several times already, truth manifested is truth manifested in deed. Other places in the scriptures call it good works or just obedience. It's to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ in the light, not walking in darkness. Now, <clears throat> back here in chapter 2, verse 28. He says, little children abide in him. Now, that term, little children, um, it's translated various ways. Some call them, say, little sons. Uh, it's just little male children. Uh, it's, a, it's a concept that in Greek, you can say sons and daughters, and there's a distinction. You know, you have different endings for Greek words that make a distinction between gender. One way it means it's guys, another, another ending means it's gals. But if you want to talk about the guys and the gals, then you use the masculine. So sometimes the only way you can know the difference here, is he talking about little boys, little sons, or is he talking about little children? And the only way to know is by the context in which it's written. And sometimes then it's even kind of difficult to tell. So consequently, you have a variety of opinions on how that, that passage should be translated. The one thing that is important to know there is that he uses a word that refers to, <clears throat> excuse me, technon, to children in general. As opposed to another word that means sons by descendants. In other words... If I said Seth is my son, that means <clears throat> he is of my procreation. But I might refer to someone else as, uh, as a son and say, hey, son, you, you better watch your step there or something like that. may not be my literal physical son, but I'm using it in another context. And when we do that, we understand exactly what we mean. Well, that's what's going on here in this passage. And so he says there that when he shall appear, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, when he, is, you know, he's not expressing any kind of doubt here. He's just saying when he shall appear. It's a matter of fact. It's going to happen. I brought with me, I was going to save this to the end, but I probably ought to just read it right now. I got a little calendar for Christmas. Uh, it was put out by Dayspring. Everybody familiar? You have heard of Dayspring. They do all the. They do a lot of cards, you know, for Christians, and they have verses in them and all that sort of thing. And in in the calendar was this little piece of cardboard here, and I thought it was very timely, and I really appreciated what they had to say. But this is what they said: When the time was right, the sea parted, the waters fell. Excuse me, the walls fell down, the lions went hungry, the sun stood still. The star appeared, the waves were calmed, 
the stone was rolled away, the Lord ascended. And when the time is right, the king of kings will return. Now, you know what? That's just a strong appeal to all these things in the scriptures that have happened in the past. And he said, we don't doubt them for one second. The walls of Jericho fell down. I mean, they, archaeologists have proved that actually happened. I mean, it's there. And so when the time is right, the king of kings will return. It's going to happen. And so John here makes this statement as a matter of fact. He says, when he shall appear, we may have confidence. Now, I like that as well. You know, the question here is not whether he shall appear, but whenever it happens. Back in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, we're not going to take the time to turn there, but it says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. And the word there is the same word, when. It's not saying it's of any doubt when the Son of Man will come in his glory. He's just saying when it happens, he will come in his glory. And that's what he's making a statement for us here. When he shall appear, we may have confidence. And so John sets up two possibilities here at the appearing of Christ. He said we may have confidence, or he says we may be ashamed before him at his coming. And the distinction here is, is that if we abide in him, That is, if we are living, walking, breathing Jesus Christ in our life, abiding in him, walking in the light, then when he appears, we're going to do so with boldness, confidence. That word confidence is is a strong word. Um, It means to be fearless, a fearless type of confidence. In other words, There will be no fear when the Lord appears for the one who has been walking and abiding in Christ. It it also, it carries the implication, and I love this, freedom of speech as with a familiar friend. It's like when Jack walks in the door, you just walk up and you can have conversation with him or anybody here in this church because of the closeness and the affinity which we have for one another. And I love it. I love hearing all these testimonies about how much you enjoy and appreciate the fellowship and the warmth. Uh, And it was great to hear uh, Abraham give a testimony. Where did you meet so many nice people? All in one place, he said. That was incredible, wasn't it? Well, it's incredible if you don't know the Lord. It's not so incredible if you know him and you're affiliated with a a group of people who are walking with him. And that's what he's trying to tell us here. It's this familiarity of speech. In other words, he's setting up the scene here where if the Lord should appear, all of a sudden you would be stunned and speechless. 
because you hadn't been walking with him. You had been in darkness and you weren't prepared for his appearance. Consequently, he says, you would be ashamed. Now that word ashamed, again, it's an interesting word. The root of that word comes from a word which means ugly. And it carries the idea of being disfigured. And consequently, in some places, it's translated, and some would even suggest here, disgraced. And so it's the, you know, you catch the idea that at the appearing of Jesus Christ, when that king of kings returns, and we are there to stand before him and to give an account, our faces will show such utter distraught It'll appear, you know, as disfigured, as a person in disgrace, a person who shows fear in the presence of another that they do not live and walk in familiar terms with. And it won't, that's not going to be a, a pleasant thing. And so John's trying to encourage the little children here, he says. Little children, abide in him. And you won't be ashamed at his appearing. But you rather will have boldness and confidence as if you were speaking or in the, in the presence of a very familiar friend. I picture that as being something like, you know, I'm standing over here and here's Bob right here and he's saying, let's greet one another and welcome one another and every day, every Sunday, Turn, give a hug, a warm, familiar friend. I don't, I don't shrink back in fear from him at all because we have a, a special relationship. Brothers in Christ. So then he goes on to say then, and not be ashamed before him. Now, the word there is apo, and everybody knows the little preposition, apo, it means from. Be ashamed from him. So it carries again with it the idea of, ah, oh, coming back away from, because you're not prepared to meet the Lord. And so as we look at the coming year of 2012, see, we look forward with, hope and anticipation. This that he calls a purifying hope down in verse 3 of, of chapter 3. We walk in that hope in the anticipation of Christ's coming in 2012 for a reason. And it's because it works to purify us, to change us. I love the testimonies I heard last night about the way Lord's, the Lord has worked in our lives and changed us in the past year. And it's, you know, one of the things that does that is the fact of his return and the fact that we will either appear before him ashamed, disgraced, or with boldness and confidence. It's going to be one or the other. And so in view of all of that, you know, John says there, Concerning the song that we sang, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, lavished upon us. 
I mean, just poured out his love upon us. That we should be called the sons or the children of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Because they did not understand the Lord Jesus Christ. And because then they ultimately crucified him. They're not going to understand us. They do not understand a Christian who lives and walks with the anticipation and the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, just go to some churches where you have huge, big crowds and everybody's happy, at least outwardly, content and satisfied just to come and go and do their thing and walk away each week and not give any thought to what the future holds for them. Oh, yeah, I mean, they just say, well, hey, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and don't really worry about it. And you can be sure that there's a whole lot more to the coming of Christ than just knowing that you'll be in heaven. This knowing him has to do with knowing him in an abiding relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so... He says in verse 3, Every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Sanctifying hope. A hope like this, a hope that is set on the appearing of Jesus Christ, works to sanctify a person. Now, of course, the word sanctified in its very simplest terms just means Set apart. It sets you apart. It causes you to make decisions in your life that further and further sets you apart from the world, the cosmos. And you walk apart from that. And you walk in a devoted, loyal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that that hope, that constant looking forward to the return of Christ just works in our hearts to bring us farther and farther and farther away from the world and closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, see, then we can appear before him without any fear. Over in the book of Jude, in verse 24, A great verse there. Jude says, now this is is the end of the letter here. You know, Jude's wrapping things up. And he says, now unto him, and that's Jesus, that, that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now, You notice it says there, he is able. He doesn't say there, I guarantee you I'm going to do this. No matter how you live, no matter what kind of relationship you have with Christ, I'm going to present you faultless. But that's what a lot of people think. And if you don't believe that, 
you really need to listen to the radio a little more, read a few more of the articles that are out there and what is taught that, hey, matter of fact, I quoted one here some time back, a, a guy with a PhD, doctor of theology, and he says, everybody, doesn't matter how they lived, and he said it in those words, they're going to appear before the Lord Jesus Christ and they're going to be promoted to glory. Now, I don't read anything like that in the Bible. And where he got that, I don't know. Because it says here, this word able means that he can do that and will do that dependent upon our response in relationship to the truth. And all you have to do to understand that is go back and read the rest of the book of Jude and you'll know exactly what he's talking about. Now, we'll look at a couple of passages here and we'll be done. About four, it looks like. Back in Romans chapter 8. We want to talk about hope. Because the world is hoping for something. They're hoping for good. They're hoping for something better. They're either hoping for a financial windfall, they're hoping for a better job, they're hoping for a better government. All the politicians are going crazy right now, looking forward to Iowa. What's going to happen there? Can they beat Obama? And you look at Europe and the things that are going on in Europe. And what they're going to do with Greece, what they're going to do with Italy, what they're going to do with Portugal. They're all in financial woes. And the debt is just crushing them. And yet they don't want to give up on hope that there's something better yet to come. Well, here in Romans chapter 8, it's kind of an extended passage. But in verse 17, Paul there says that if we are the children of God, then he says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also, uh, be also glorified together. And you can, in the context there, supply the words glorified together with him. And what does it mean to be glorified together with him? Well, I just quoted a verse a little bit ago from Matthew chapter 25 that says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... When he comes in his glory, he will be established upon his throne of glory, and he's going to rule the earth. Scripture says for a thousand years he's going to rule the earth. And when he does, he's going to bring in all that the world is longing for now. Peace and righteousness and a world that's full of production that will supply all the material needs of man. And everybody's going to be happy. The only thing is right now, the leaders of this world want to do it without Jesus. They want to do it on their own. They don't want him. That's why in Psalm chapter 2, you know, they rage against the Lord's Christ. They have no interest in him. And yet the very thing that they want, that's what he says, I'll give you. But the condition is, you come follow me, he said. And obey the truth. Well, his promise here is, is that if we do that and we suffer with him. Now, that's, that's the issue. 
Everybody wants the free ride of going to heaven with Jesus. I mean, I guess I'd like that too. Wouldn't that be nice? But he says here, a condition to sharing in his future glory, he says, is to suffer with him. And he goes on to talk about, uh, in verse 18, he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, that little word in is actually to be revealed to us. That is, to us who suffer with him. And so those who do choose to follow Christ and suffer with him, he says, this present age has nothing to offer to be compared with the glory that's going to come in the future age, the age of Christ's rule and reign over the earth, than anything we could have right now. And he goes on even to talk about the creation groaning and travailing, waiting until that day when Jesus Christ is manifested and all is released and there's peace. And then he goes on to say in verse 25, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience or endurance wait for it. In other words, we don't see it. We don't see out there that happening yet. Consequently, we wait with patience for it. And that's what it means to live and walk in faith, waiting for that coming day, believing that it's actually going to happen. And so just like the walls that came down, the lions that went hungry, the waters that were calmed, and all those other things mentioned here, when the time's right, the king of kings will come again. And so we better be ready. And January the 1st of 2012 is a great time to make sure you're ready. Titus chapter 2, another passage that deals with this whole idea of hope. So let's look at Titus chapter 2, a very, very familiar passage. A passage here talking about the grace of God. And, he, and, it's, and it's, it, he starts out with this whole idea of, well, it's, it's in verse 13, looking. It's to the future. He says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world or this present age. So in other words, the idea is there's an age right now that we live in and then there's, the Bible talks about an age to come. That age after Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom, there's going to be a new age instituted. So in this present age, he says, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Looking for, in verse 13, that blessed hope. Well, what is that blessed hope? What is it that we're hoping for? He says here, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, 
those who've been around here know that the literal rendering of that is it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's an important distinction. Glorious is an adjective, but glory is a noun. And we're looking for the noun. We're looking for the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's a, it's a noun in Greek. And then, of course, he goes on to tell us, just like John did, how we should be living in view of that. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Well, that's people who do the deed, the good deeds in truth that John was talking about in his letter. Hebrews chapter 10 Two more passages to look at. Hebrews chapter 10 says something else about our hope. <coughs> In chapter 10 and verse, um, verse 23. Now in verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart. Well, that would have been a good theme as well for this whole, this whole idea of walking in the light, not walking in darkness, is having a true heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Now, couple things we have to note here. Number one is the word profession. It's would be, it's okay the way it is, but you might see some other translations that would call that confidence. And that's kind of the idea. If we profess something, that means we have confidence in it. If I hold to something and I say, well, I believe this to be true, then I'm, I've got confidence in that. But the, the other one that's really significant is that word faith which is actually the word hope. And why the translators translated it that way, I'll never know, but because every other place in the New Testament where this Greek word appears, it's translated hope. And so he's telling us here to let us hold fast the profession of our hope. If we are hoping in that coming glory, and we are hoping in sharing in that glory with Jesus Christ, then he's just simply encouraging us, hold fast to it. Don't give it up. In spite of all the shame and the humiliation that you're going to face as a believer, and you will, then he's encouraging us to hold fast to it. And then over in 1 Peter, just a couple more pages over to the right, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter there tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. And of course the word lively there is a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's genuine. It's real. It's something to embrace and hang on to because it gives substance to your faith. It gives you a purpose for living. And you know what? It actually fulfills the purpose for which God made us. 
because back there in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28, he tells us that God created man to have dominion or rule over the earth. Now, we've never been able to rule the earth according to God's design and plan since, since that time, since Adam re rebelled and refused. But there's coming a day through the Lord Jesus Christ and his restoring of man to that position where he can rule that many, not all, many who are walking in faith and in the light of Christ will be called to share in that future rule. And so he calls it a, a living, lively, living hope. In verse 5, he says, These who are doing that are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so the point being is, is that there is a, a future time that the Lord has in view that we are to be hanging on to, grasping or embracing by faith, because we can't see it. We just believe it to be true. And most of the world, well, actually, all the world, if they're a part of the world, cannot understand that. And so whether it's government, family, finances, you know, whatever we're looking at in life, none of these things will really produce or fulfill that kind of hope. And yet, many go seeking after it by following those avenues. I remember when Bill Clinton was president, and he worked so hard, so hard trying to bring peace in the Middle East. He wanted to bring those two, the Palestinians and the Israelis together so bad, he could hardly stand it. He wanted to be the man known to have brought peace to the earth. And if you could really say it this way, it was like he wanted to do what Jesus said he's going to do. Jesus said he is going to bring peace, a peace that this world has never known, which is why what we just celebrated at, at Christmas. What's that The familiar verse? It's about ready to escape me. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I mean, we hear it over and over and over at Christmas time. The very thing, the very one who will bring that peace, the world rejects. What an enigma. But it's only by the grace of God, the favor with which he looks down upon us and gives us that gift of the Lord Jesus Christ that even enables people like us to have that kind of faith and to know that kind of truth and embrace it with all of our hearts. And I trust that as we enter into this new year, that's exactly what we'll do. We'll just embrace it in its wholeness, in its fullness. And when we do, we know that we can have the confidence that when he appears, we won't be ashamed. We won't be embarrassed. We'll be able to stand there with joy and gladness in our hearts. We'll see his face as if we were looking at a familiar friend, and you'll recognize him. You'll recognize him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for all the promises that you've given us in your word as to what you will do. We thank you for your obedience and coming to be born 
in human flesh. We thank you for the message that you have declared unto us, sent by the Father to share these things with us. And I pray, Father, that through your Son, Jesus Christ, we would embrace those things that will be ultimately fulfilled when the King of kings and the Lord of lords returns to this earth. And all the enemies of God will be put down. And we will see that ultimate restoration of life to this earth as you meant it to be. Let us be glad and rejoice in those things, we pray in Jesus' name.